Hey guys, we produce this podcast for no other reason than to have a positive impact on the lives of you guys, the listeners, by sharing the stories and lessons of some incredible business owners. If you'd like to support our show, please head to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, rate us five stars and leave a review. Your review would be greatly appreciated and keeps us going. And now back to the show. Hello, legends. Today, I catch up with Cub member Sheila Hogan, CEO of BX Collective, an organization that helps companies scale through a proven management model. Sheila started her first business in New York at the age of 30 and grew it to over 150 staff before successfully exiting and moving to Australia with her family. Sheila and I discussed how you have the power to design your own life through business, a business that suits your stage of life at that point in time how to successfully exit a business, and her key lessons in surviving the last financial crisis. Sheila has a depth of knowledge and experience of business that I rarely come across, and that resulted in an incredible conversation and episode. Hope you enjoy the show. So I read that you are a fast-talking New Yorker, (laughs) so we're not going to have any issues (laughs) keeping the conversation going. Over the last 10 years, I had to slow it down. So I'm at medium speed lately until I get around fellow New Yorkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Australians are a lot slower. Yeah, it's like... But tell me about your career because I know that you've had a really interesting career in that you you started your first business in your 30s. Uh, you built a, a really successful business with, I think it was over 100 staff. In your 40s, um, you ended up, um, was that when you came to Australia? Yeah. Yeah. You came to Australia and you started leading existing businesses and teams of, you know, 15 to 20 staff. Mm. And then after that stage, you're like, you know what? I don't want to do the big business thing anymore. Mm. I want to uh, uh, create the lifestyle I want doing my own type of, type of business. And now you're a solopreneur. So you actually have experienced all the different, yeah. I guess, and through most styles of, the life of cycles. Yeah. And I think that's really incredible. That's what I want to talk about today because I often think like business is um, – like there's no right and wrong in business. Like I used to argue with people about, oh, your staff can't work from home, it's useless. But then but then I like I learned that, well, no, that's not useless because it, it, it might work for that person's style of business. Maybe that person is a young mum and they don't want staff to come into the office because they don't want to be in the office, they want yeah. to be at home. And yeah. so you can create a business that creates the lifestyle that, that serves you. You know, and you've done that. You can choose stages. that. Yeah. There's, you know, you can let life take you along the journey or you can design your own life. So I think it is really interesting. And, you know, I always, there's always that brutal saying of, you know, what, as soon as you assume you make an ass out of you and me. So I've learned along the way that there is no right and wrong. There's just a lot of different variables to consider. So yeah, you can, you can fall into the trap of just taking that job and, working the nine to five, or you can really look at life and say, there's got to be another way to do this. And, and so you were, you are, you were born in New York? No, Midwest girl. I oh, was, wow. yeah, one of eight children, big Irish Catholic family in the middle of Ohio, which is uh, nowhere near an ocean and very far away from Australia. But yes. And when did you move to New York? As soon as I graduated college. <laughs> it was, it was one of those things that I was really tired of being a, you know, so-and-so's little sister or niece or whatever. And I thought, as soon as I can, I want to go be a small fish in a very large pond and just see where life takes me. So straight to New York City, probably three weeks after I graduated college. 
And did you always know you were going to be a business person no, or that's something that happened? Not at all. In fact, you know, I didn't have, I think a lot of people say you're a product of your environment. And I do believe that, but I grew up with, you know, mom, dad was a bank manager and my mom worked for the government sector for over 30 years. So it was in that chaos of a large family, you just, you went, you were very risk averse. So you did the safe thing. You got a job that paid you every week and, it paid for university, and so it was very predictable and safe. So that's what I always thought I'd do, you know, go work for a big company in New York, and which I did the first hmm, couple of weeks. <laughs> and I very quickly realized when you're just a number, you can't make a difference. So in New York, yeah, amazing opportunities, but you find yourself surrounded by entrepreneurs. Everyone's starting their own business. So that environment is what taught me that I could think bigger. And I could think more entrepreneurial. So it wasn't until I was working for someone who was very successful and wasn't a very nice person and didn't necessarily run their business very ethically. And I thought, wow, if this can be that successful, if we just did it right, if we did it kinder, if we did it with the people more at the center of the business rather than the money um, and the growth, maybe, maybe I could do it. Maybe. And then there was a day, I'll never forget, this is... Go, going way back, you know, shows my age. But in the late 90s, when Microsoft, um, there was a whistleblower that pretty much outed the fact that everybody was a freelancer at Microsoft. And the IRS woke up and was like, where's all our payroll taxes? So it was a big blitz on companies in the States that were treating employees like contractors rather than true employees. And at the time, I was a, a, an agent for fashion designers. So very niche business. But we worked with the Ralph Lauren's, the Calvin's, the Tommy's, the, you know, the Liz Claiborne's, the ones that were very large brands in America. So one or two of those clients were on the top 100 in America that employed the most people. So slowly the, you know, they were doing audits on, is everyone treating their employees the right way, paying them? Long story short, we, I had some clients on that list and it was, they called up and said, Hey, are we compliant? And I, there were some things that I was, I wasn't sure of. So I went and found out and they wanted us to say we were. And so long story short, it was like, you know, it, this is the time it just, the penny dropped and it was, we can do this better. So my business partner and I stepped out, started our own agency. And so what was the business? So it was, what business a, it were was you a in? talent agency for fashion designers. Agency. Yeah, it was very, very unique. You know, you could only really do this in New York, LA, Paris, London. So, um, yeah, if, you know, not to burst anyone's bubbles, but Ralph Lauren doesn't design all his clothes and Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein, they definitely bring in lots of designers to do their swimwear line, their sweater line, things like that. So we we were talent agencies. So your job, we talent agency. so the company, or your job at, at first, so before you started your company, was to find talented designers to design for major brands. You bet. And, that, and, and so you're in the company, you're doing it, what made you, so you're working for an existing company that does that, that... Is that the one that you were saying doesn't have, didn't have the best culture or best Correct. leadership? And yeah. so what made you think, you know what, we, we're going to go out on our own and we can do this better? It was that fork in the road of do I stay and maybe, you know, when you, you get closer to how businesses are run rather than just being an employee doing your job, you realize that there are other things that you know very clearly could be done better or differently or you could do it differently. And when you're at the coal face, you know, most of your employees that are working with your clients and with, you know, at that point our talent, 
um, we knew what they needed and wanted. And there was a gap. There was, so for us, we saw that as an opportunity. It's like there's an opportunity to do this better and do it better with the people that um, we're, we're getting work for. Um, so you hear from them. So I think it's pretty powerful that you, you always take into consideration those people on the front lines probably know more than you when you're running a business and you should pretty much engage them and learn where the opportunities are. And, you know, that's innovation is, is leveraging those opportunities and filling that gap. And now we saw some gaps that just were not being addressed by choice. So we just said, no, we're doing it better. We're going to do this. So it was a massive leap. I was, like I said, I was not even 30 at the time. Um, but we had enough confidence and we had enough clients that we knew would follow us. And, and when the talent themselves knew that we wanted to do it better and we would do it better for them. I like the concept of like, in, I mean, business is doing something better than someone else. And you could argue innovation is doing something better Absolutely. by doing something different. Absolutely. You know, like, it's just how can I do it better? And like in your business, you should always be thinking like, how could we do this better? How could we accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish for our clients better? Absolutely. Make the that is innovation. Yeah. It's not out there. It's right under your nose. Mm. It really is. It's what it's, Steve Jobs says, it's connecting the dots. Yeah, And if you connect the dots, you'll see where the gaps and the opportunities and the first one in, best dressed, you know, they're ahead of the game. They're the incumbent. They leverage the opportunity. I always say that it's not, innovation is not something shiny out there. It's definitely, it's feedback. It's asking your clients the right questions, asking your employees the right questions, and they have the answers. It's just a matter of identifying which one you think is the best opportunity to leverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how long were you in that business for? We grew that business. I was involved day dot. Um, 10 years we grew it, seven locations, 150 employees. Wow. Yeah, and in that time, similar to you, you know, got married, had three children. Life continued and yet the business was the first child and it was great. It was it was an amazing opportunity that we we just ran at. Do you think you would have been able so do you think it was easier to do the business before you did the family? Like did that make it easier or was like or would it yeah. have been better after? Oh, like you said, there's no right or wrong. Yeah. I think it, it's when the time is right for you when you've got when you're ready to take that risk and you just you go. And then you make sure that life just doesn't get left behind. So I don't know if there's any sequence that's better. I certainly know I had a lot more energy and was able to stay up long, late nights. Um, within the first six months, I poured the, I pulled the short straw to move to LA to open that office. And that was three months after I got married. So probably would not have gone so well if I had three little children at home to say, I'm going to move to LA, open that office and, and build that business out there. So it was a lot easier without dependencies, actually. <laughs> and what about... Um, so you did that 10 years and you decided to move to Australia. I didn't decide. <laughs> I kind of was given the ultimatum. I have an Australian husband who grew up oh. surfing on Bondi every single morning. And for him, to we met in New York City, as you do, um, in a bar. And I don't think he ever expected to marry an American, have three American children. Um, he was, you know, he was on his really exciting career path and was going to travel the world with a 
with an international shipping company and got, it got slightly interrupted. And 15 years later, three children later, we were in New York City and he was miserable. He was absolutely miserable. So again, when before you get married and have children, Daniel, you probably have those conversations and you think you know what you want. Yep. I wanted... He wanted six kids. I was like, let's have three and we'll decide from there. Um, we were going to raise them in Australia. We both agreed that because it's an amazing place here. And that's all really well and good on paper. And then you live a life and you build a business and you have 100 employees that are like family and it's a successful business and you have everything that you thought you wanted. And then it's you know, okay, it's time. We've got kids. Let's go to Australia. And I was like, I'm not ready. Um, so I said two more years and two years came and went and just, okay, let's go. And I was like, I'm not ready. And he goes, well, I'm just going to take the kids down to Australia and you can just join us whenever you are ready. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's not going to work. So it was hard because it was not necessarily what I wanted at the time. It was really hard to envision walking away from, from my first you know, what I, blood, sweat and tears built. Very successful, very proud. And it feels like part of your identity as well because oh. it's so much of you goes into the business. Totally. That like, I mean, I've never sold or left a business yet before, but I can imagine it being. It's part of you. Yeah. It is. It's, there is a big, it took me a good 18 months to really unwind, not only literally, um, but then emotionally, you know, and then to, be doing that. Listen, it was two years after the financial crisis. So it was the right time. It was, we had stabilized the business. We didn't, we didn't lose too much in that transition um, where many companies just went out of business. So it was, I felt good walking away because the business was stabilized and was going to continue to be successful. So it was great to know that it was in good hands and it would continue and grow. And to, to this day, it's, I think, over 17 locations. So it's thriving, which is something that's awesome. But in order to do... What's it called? It's 24-7 talent. Okay. So it's it's alive and well. My baby is alive and well out there. And that's growing. cool too, so knowing that is. I started that and it's it still is. thriving. Very much so. Um, so leaving that was financial because it wasn't worth anywhere near what it was five years earlier, you know, so timing is everything, but shit happens, as you say. Um, that's unforeseeable. That financial crisis took out businesses that were in business for 50 plus years. So financially it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as you would hope, but it was successful. It was a very successful and amicable, amicable exit and leaving it in a very healthy place. We got to move to Australia at a great time. We arrived here. It was 2010. It was a Boomtown, like we had just survived in the States, an amazing tragedy of financial and, and global financial crisis. And I show up on the shores of, of Sydney and it's, there is nothing. It has not touched the sides of Australia, which is amazing, which was really, really reassuring. But it was also, people were just happy and unaffected by it. So it was, it was like, oh, walking off into the sunset. It wasn't like we were moving to Alaska. We were moving to Australia, which what a great story is that. So, but I did, I kind of came kicking and screaming, you know. And and so you you had to sell, I guess, your shares in the business because you were moving. Yeah. That, it was that was a personal it. choice. That would it was have been purely, 
you know, it was a choice between my family or my business. Mm -hmm. And you have to make, sometimes you have to make those decisions. They're hard. They're hard. There's a hundred ways that that could have played out. Um, Our version was I decided it was best for me to completely step away and move on with my life and start a new life in Australia. I think also you can, you, you should always have confidence in that. Well, I did create that. I can do it again. That's I have those lessons. Like I can build, I can build it. I build something new in, in, in my new life in Australia or wherever. Mm. It's exactly what it is. It was, you know, you can recreate another business. You can start over. I was only 40, um, but you can't replace, you know, a family, father, your children. That's just, that was my choice is that that was the, the, the no brainer is that we can do this again. We can do this again. And tell me about the financial crisis. What were some of the lessons that, Mm. that you learned Mm. going through that? Cause that was, that was before me in business. Mm. Um, my big experience was COVID, obviously. Yeah. But but I'd love to hear what some of the lessons you have from the financial crisis were. <sighs> yeah, I was keeping a really tight hold, a grip on the business and making really wise decisions, hard decisions every single week. You know, we didn't just – we were fortunate enough that 80% of our business was contractual. So it was more, it was probably in a good position, you know, when COVID you'll know a lot of businesses that did well out of that crisis um, because of the service or the product that they were offering. And we had 80% of our teams or our businesses were contract workers. So it was expandable that not the fixed cost for companies to bring in contractors. And that was, so that did well to a degree, but there was still an impact, you know, everything was impacted. We probably had a 30% attrition rate or that we had to retrench. Um, so when you say you had to make hard decisions, what do you mean by that? You every mean, week. Firing a, a lot Friday of people? Night, yes. Or? You know, every Friday we said the leaders of the, the business, the owners stayed back and we had to. Assessed. Yeah. And it was brutal we had to put names on a list and it was happening in every business, but we couldn't believe that we had to do it as well. So even though we were, we had a significant amount of business that was going to be, it was not recession proof, but it was recession friendly. It was one of those things you still had to cut costs to stay alive. And is that the lesson then from that? It's that, you know, your job as the business is to do what you need to do to to for continue the for the greater good of the business, like yeah. longevity of the yeah. business is, yeah. is the priority. Mm. And that has, that requires tough decisions and hard yeah. times. Absolutely. And keeping a real strong hold of what that means, what is important. So the decisions, even though they're difficult decisions, you know, in your heart and your head, they make sense and you can explain them no matter how hard it is to receive that information. It's not, it's not emotional. It's very much it's an emotional process, but the logic is we have no choice. If we want to stay alive and we want to continue to employ people and to be around to support people, um, we have to do this. Yeah. I think that's a really good lesson. It's, it's, yeah, I don't want to do this. This mm. isn't, this isn't what I want to do. Mm. This is, we are forced to do this. And, and yeah. I think it, as a business owner, you can also look at it as, I need to do this for the greater good of all the people that I'm going to keep employed because if I don't do this, I will have no one employed. And so, you know, I am responsible for keeping as many people employed as possible. And therefore I do need to, I, I do need to, um, um, uh, keep it alive. Some people, yeah. Keep some people alive. do need to become keep unemployed the lights from on. the company. Yeah. It's a chapter in the business. 
it's a tough chapter, but you want to make sure it's just a chapter of many volumes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and and when you'd have those conversations, did you have to have many yourself? Yes. Yep. We all had teams. We all had teams. So I was more, at that stage I was running more the operations. Um, so the operations were where you build efficiencies and you cut costs. So there were definitely people, there were definitely um, suppliers that I had to reduce or discontinue. Absolutely. You know, Re- removing people from companies is one of, is it, no one likes doing, mm. you know, it's one, it's, it's one of the bad parts of the job for a business owner. It's the fact that you do occasionally have to fire people, mm. even people you like, you know, yeah. all for reasons that, that were out of your control. But, Absolutely. but I think what's important for all business owners to know and do is that, well, A, that is part of your role and you can't like every part of your role. You know, there's, mm. there's got to be the, the bad yeah. parts too, no matter what you're doing. Mm. But B, I think it's always important to be a good person, be honest, be empathetic, mm. and also be direct. You know, just just put it out there, get it out, get mm. it done, mm. do it in a rip nice way, and try, yeah, rip the bandaid off, and try to support <laughs> that person the best way you can as well. Absolutely, try to help yeah. them get their next yeah. role. Yeah. Um, I reckon there's not enough. Um, content or education on, on how to, how to actually that, do it. How like, to do it well. Yeah. Well, a lot of people outsource it. Some people. That's horrible. You know, I couldn't do that. I, yeah, I know do that. that, you know, I know that that's a, that's a big business and they know how to do it right, but this is a total stranger that doesn't know you and is giving you, and you want to hear it from the people that you spent time with. So I, I agree. I mean, that's not a wrong thing to do. There's a way to do everything. You just make choices. So very much so. I'll never forget one had their second child on the way and literally broke down crying. He just was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And it was in that moment, you just, you're present with them. You don't, you know, you don't even say, I'm sorry. You just say, I know I'm with you. And I can't tell you how hard this is, but um, it, it is, it's all about the delivery, but you know, They've said no matter how kind you are, no matter how empathic you are at the time, two days later, you're a bitch. <laughs> so the reality is, is you just do the best you can in that environment. But, you know, when people are, when they don't have a choice in it, sometimes regardless, they look back and go, that just sucked. Or I'd like, I'd like to think more times than not, there was like, it, it was part of it was part of the environment. It was it was what was going on the at the whole time. World. The whole you know, world did they that. didn't have a choice. And do you feel like that was that the hardest stage of your business you've ever been through? And and do you feel like you became stronger? Yeah. I mean were, were I stronger after it than before it? That was the hardest from an you know, an a business leader and a manager of people by far because it was every week. Most companies you do that at, you know, there's different stages or there's a scenario that prompts it. This was Every week we had to look at that for probably three or four months just to right-size the business for the for the climate, for the financial climate. So it was just how often the occurrences and having to do that. It was, it was just it was so emotionally difficult. But the, I'd say the hardest part was definitely unwinding myself from a business partnership and, and exiting a business. Oh, that One, was the hardest. Oh, for sure. Why? Because it's yours. It's almost like you're taking it, you know. It's like um, – is it the right time? Is there a better time? How do we do this with respect? How do we do this financially? How do we how we communicate to the staff? Oh, I mean, there there is so many aspects 
of preparing either to sell a business or to exit a business that there's just so many variables. So that was probably, and I was, you know, 39 years old. I had three young children. I was, uh, it, it was a massive, it was a very difficult How did decision. you balance all that? You just, you, you have just really do. great <laughs> advisors. No, you pull in really fantastic advisors. And because they do this, it's almost like, this is stuff that you don't do every day. Go find somebody who does it every day to hold your hand and say, no, this is right. This is wrong. This is fair. This is. Um, paid, paid advisors. You bet. You just, you get the, you get the, the company valued, you get your, you just get the financial, you get the accounting, you get the lawyer, you get everybody that guides you through it with grace, if that's the way you intend to go through it, but you just let them carry you and you rely heavily on their experience because we always said that we do this every day. Why would you, you know, why would you do it yourself? This is a big, this is probably one of the biggest chapters in your life or the biggest decisions you're going to make. Emotionally, financially, it's it's a big fork in the road. So you want to make sure you, at the end of it, you knew you gave it every single chance to be successful. So, and you need a mitigator. You know, these are people that you've spent your life with and we're talking about a business relationship. Um, so we Just, were like family and yet you were separating and you were doing a deal. So there's there's two very different things at play there. So having a mediator and a professional that's telling you this is the book value, this is the this, this is this is how you can do it. You've got three different ways. That's up to you guys. Um, so, so you'd recommend when you split with business partners, even in a positive sense, don't just sit there and do it yourselves, bring in external assistance and let them You'd be run the process. crazy not to. Yeah. It's just, it's it's. Yeah. Well, it's a great lesson it's because there's so blind. many, so many people. I mean, mm. yours was, I guess, relatively positive one in that you, you had to leave, but there's so many negative oh. stories about business partners Not by and choice. separation. Yeah. Totally. Where they start fighting. And yeah. It's one of the scariest things about Even if uh, it's business. amicable, when it starts to get to the real nitty gritty, mm, everybody has different perspectives, feelings, impressions. So it, keeping it as clean as possible with data and professionals and mediators, um, it just sets it up for a, a much better post-exit relationship and feelings because you just live with that story the rest of your life and mm. it's either a good story or it's not so great, you know. And when you came to Australia, you decided to uh, lead existing companies, so run existing companies? Yeah, I had there was non-compete, obviously, for a couple of years So because APAC was on our roadmap for global expansion, but it was one of those things that I just thought I can't just arrive in a foreign country because no matter how many times I'd been here with family and I knew there was a soft landing, I didn't know about the business culture and I didn't want to just come in and think I could do the same. So I thought I'm going to get a lay of the land, understand the business culture, um, see where the opportunities are. So I took some time off and I thought, what do I, but I, for, for me as an entrepreneur, just even the life I'd been leaving for the last 10, 15 years, I was not going to sit idle. So I thought, what can, what do I love doing? Property. I love property, you know, commercial Great as well as domestic. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I thought I'll just become a real estate agent because I love it. And because I could, I thought free agent, work with, you know, with a great brand. I was with McGraw, um, did what I just loved that for a couple of years and in that process met some really interesting people along the way. It was Northern Beaches. A couple of that I sold their house, they they were free agents. They moved to Singapore because they wanted to expand their business into Asia and they were like, 
Sheila quit real estate, run our business because we know you can run a business. Um, we've, we've got a full running business consulting agency here in Sydney. We're moving to Asia. We're going to expand that market. We need someone to run Sydney. And I was like, I can do that. And they were like, it's easy. It runs itself, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was awesome because I, this was my toolbox. I loved running businesses. I loved managing teams. I loved seeing where the opportunities to grow the business were and, and leverage that. So I got to do that. I got to do that with someone else's, you know, not monopoly money, but it was someone else's risk. And I got to play in that sandbox and it was, I was fairly autonomous in, in the way I got to run the business and grow the business. And I got to do that. Um, I had a, I rebuilt the team. I built a big part of the enterprise um, se segment of that business. And then I built, because it's in my DNA, I built a recruitment arm because I thought, well, you know, so I made it a turnkey solution. I loved it. It was, it was great. So grew that business over seven, uh, almost seven years. And it was a husband and wife team. They were really supportive, really um really good about letting me do that. After a while, they realized, okay, she knows what she's doing. And then I thought, well, this is quite successful business, isn't it? It's not mine. <laughs> As the business owner in you does. I you was know, like, I should be doing great. this for myself. I'm making a lot of money for a lot of people. And, and I thought, it's time. It's time to do my own thing again. It took a while. It took longer than I expected. But tell me, what's the difference? So how does it feel running your own business as opposed to running someone else's business? And which did you prefer? Oh, I mean, obviously you preferred running your own business because you got it back was, there. But it's fun doing both. Like it's fun, fun doing your own. I mean, it was great doing it myself with my business partner and that was just super, super exhilarating and rewarding. Um, doing it for others, it was almost like taking a little bit of a vacation, you know. It was it was the risk but nowhere near the risks. You know, I got to uh, – I, I left it. On Fridays, I'd go home and it was, I left it. Um, and when it's yours, you just, it's always with you, in my experience. It's always with you. You're never off duty. You're always thinking. Um, but when it's not yours and it's not your money, it's not your risks, it's not your shares. So the stress level is a lot lower? It's so much lower. Yeah, wow. It is, at least in my experience. Oh, no, it would be for everyone. In I can my experience. Imagine. And I was still pretty invested because some people would just, you know, run that business and say it's doing well and not even think of how to grow it because it's not theirs. Whereas I was like, no, opportunity, opportunity, let's do that, let's do that. So I was a true visionary in that role, whereas in the other business I was the integrator. I don't know if that's as a So I got to be the visionary, which is kind of just chasing really great opportunities and seeing um, how they would go. Whereas in when it was my business, I was much more of a COO, which was like very practical and it had to make sense on paper and mitigated risks um, see, because it was my money. But it's know? also incredible that you can do both mm. because like, I mean, my job is like the visionary job, which is the easy one. You just get to sit around and think of great ideas all day and gee, everyone up, get everyone excited and get yep. everyone, you know, doing things. But, but that's not what makes a business. That's essential. Mm. But what really makes a business is the operations. And what makes a big business is great operations. You, uh, mm. you need the execution. That. Yeah. And you don't always have like, it's very rare there's someone that does the great operations and is a great visionary too. Very so, rare. you know, you're a bit of a unicorn in that sense. It was great to pull the different levers at different times. So it is very unusual to have that same, the personality traits of a visionary and, and a, you know, a COO are very different because they're motivated by different things. Um, but to be able to, 
to be able to have both of those experiences has been really great. Um, and in the end I chose, I want I want to be, I want my own business. I could have kept going, had lots of opportunities. It was really great that I had choices, but I knew I wanted to get back to running my own thing. And is that when you started BX Collective? It is. It was time to just break off on my own and work with the BX stands for the business of experience because I just thought I've got 25 years of experience that's worth something. And, and I realized as I was considering stepping off and, and doing my own thing again, I did a lot of research and Australia, the statistics here are crazy. 92% of businesses are small businesses. Operate no, under, no, operate no, under 90, I think it's 97. 97%, yeah, 97 have under 20 2 million. employees. Yes, or 2 million in revenue. Yeah. yeah, so it's under 10 million, it's like 90. So it's it's just, it's this massive piece of the market that needs, that if they want they to grow bigger, they need support. Yeah, there's a huge market there. It, it, it's a market that I, I've recently gotten heavily into that market because mm. that's what we're doing with BOA. Mm. Cub is, was always the premium business networking platform. It was mm. it was for the businesses typically with over $2 million in revenue. That's right. And it was designed for them. Like it was, it's best for them. It's mm. designed for them. But, but yeah, 98% of businesses aren't that. Yeah. And so we wanted to create a, a – we wanted to – we wanted to give – provide the – the value we're providing to that market to the rest of the majority of the market. And we needed a more accessible way to do that. And that's kind of how we got into bowl. Mm. So I'm all over that, mm. that market at the moment. It's really a fun market I, to play. I couldn't in believe it. I just couldn't yeah. believe it was that percentage. So it, I thought, well, there's a lot of people out there that could benefit from my experience, my knowledge. And that means the odds are pretty good that <laughs> There's business out there for me. So And so you provide people like a um your own management model that you then No. Ha- no. It's not my own. So that's a big difference in my experience and in my journey was do I go out and build my own bespoke? Or do I go with like when I was in real estate, I didn't just put up a sign and say I'm selling houses. I went to I went to a brand that I was aligned with, a philosophy that I was aligned with. I picked the brands that I that resonated with me and I would resonate with them and I did my own thing under their brand. So So which brand are you using? EOS. Oh, do you do traction? Yeah. EOS. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, that's uh, a great model. It is. A great that, model. That's the best model I have ever come across mm. personally, and believe me, I come across all the models. Like it, it, it's all, um, um, it's all, um, it all comes through Cub. Like we, we've seen everything, but traction is the one that I always felt was the most, um, the simplest and the most effective. And I was actually introduced to it by a guy named Daniel Davies or Davis, yeah. Yeah. who was like one of the first Cub members. Like I actually remember signing him myself. Here in this awesome. club, in that in the lounge yeah. over there, yeah, and he's joined on the spot. I think he just liked me. Back then, I was a little kid. I didn't even know what I was doing. I, it wasn't even. But cut that's back his then. story. It's similar yeah. to his story, which yeah, is yeah. awesome. I think he did shopping Seven Elevens or something. I can't remember. But anyway, uh, IGA something. IGA, like that. yeah, an IGA. But um, and like in like twenty eight. He's a very lovely awesome man. Story, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he a is. really. And really he brought EOS to Australia. Yes, I remember. Yeah. Um, okay. So you do. And so, how many people are you looking after now with the current business? So, um, I'm, I've got currently ten companies that mm-hmm. are 
running on it with me as their implementer mm. and growing because it's only about two, I guess I'm coming on three years, but the first year was right after COVID. Um, so it was one of those things that, you know, they've recently turned that into a franchise model. So I'm not sure if you know, it's been around for, you know, coming on 20 years, but about two, I think two, maybe two, two or three years ago, a private equity firm that was using EOS for all of its portfolio <laughs> to increase, you know, the return on investment. Uh, they were like, this is great. And they, they eventually acquired it. So it's now one of those really great opportunities that I can run my own business, but the IP it's supported by a proven model um, lots and lots of case studies around the world with success success metrics and books and software platform. But at the end of the day, it's my business. I get to charge what I want. I get to work with who I want. Um, so it's that perfect formula because I think, you know, you can go into your bespoke framework or model or and name it Sheila Hogan, but at the end of the day, it's not about me. I'm giving people a product and helping them implement something that's going to help their business. So it was really... To me, I loved the idea of just grabbing an IP that I absolutely, because I actually implemented it in that business I was talking about. And that was how I was able to grow it, not only scale it, but grow it in re different revenue streams and, and get the right people in the right seats. So when I thought about what am I going to do as I go out on my own using my experience, it was marrying up with a framework that I actually had implemented myself so I could really introduce it and drive it to and share it with companies with absolute conviction. Um, so that's what I did. There's a lot of cub members use EOS. Oh, I know. I even, I even um, still use, so Daniel introduced me to the scorecard mm. and we have like, that's my report, the scorecard totally. report. But do you want to share, I guess, a bit of the framework to, to how people, how EOS works and, and how, like what is the management framework? Sure. It's well, it stands EOS stands for the entrepreneurial operating system. So again, it was started almost 20 years ago. So system meant a system, a framework, a model back then. Now systems, I think a lot of people go, oh, so it's a software pro product. So um, it's very much of a, a framework, a management model, and it's fit for purpose, like you said, for small business. I mean, it absolutely is in large business and some enterprises actually use it as well, but it's really designed for the small business that is trying to get to that next level um, oh gosh, I, um, one of the podcasts I listened to of yours, I loved it. Robbie Carter. Oh my gosh. I was like, that's, that's the story, which was, you know, these are people, especially in Australia, the small businesses, they're really, really good at their trade. So they start a business, they break off and they build their own. And then they get to a point that they've got 10, you know, in, in agency land, we always used to say the number was 10 or 12, where it just changed the game. You were a different business, the level of complexity, the people, you had to do things differently. So this is a model that is very simple. I think you said it was so simple. And the simple aspect is it's not simple to do. It's very hard to implement, but the simplicity of it makes it more approachable for companies that are like, I can't do, you know, the McKinsey's, I can't do the big complex models. There's a lot out there, but they're very complex. And this is six key components Within each component, there's two disciplines and tools. That's it, right? And there's like, it can't be that simple. It's like, well, we'll try to implement these tools and see. It's not simple to do. It's the concept itself is very clean and simple and approachable. Um, so it's, you know, you have to have a vision. Every business, every visionary starts with a vision of how 
what I want to do, what I, where I want to take a business. Second component is people. You can't get that vision, get to that vision without people helping you get there. Once you've got the vision clear and you've got the right people in the organization, the third component is data. You got to run it on data. So what tells you you're on track with the right people in the right seats? Data. So that's the third key component. The fourth is as soon as you have your vision crystal clear and you've got the right people in the organization or you think you have the right people in the organization helping you and you've got the right data that you're looking at, the information that's telling you whether you're on track or off track or you're profitable or not profitable. Um, the next thing that's absolutely going to happen is there's nowhere to hide. You see all the imperfections and impurities or opportunities when you have that kind of grip on your business and you're watching it that closely. So the fourth component is issues. People are like, oh, Sheila, are you kidding? You're picking six key components for this massive business model and issues is one of them. And I can't tell you the reality is if you don't identify your issues in an organization and go at them and solve them at the root, it's just going to slow down your growth. So I think it's underestimated that you not only have a, a program and a process and a tool around identifying the biggest issues and blockers that are keeping you from getting to where you want to go, but how you solve for them, you know, so you can talk until you're blue in the face. Is that going to get you, is that going to actually solve the problem? So issues is number four and then process. Obviously you have to have a process. Once you identify what's working and working really well, you capture it and you make sure everywhere you go, everyone's doing it the best and the right way. And, and process then, is what enables you to scale as well. It's the only way. Show, Quality assurance, exactly. efficiencies, profitability. It's process. normally the hardest part for small business is the process. And it's the last thing people get to. They mm. keep putting it to the side. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we have to do that. It's, it is the hardest. So having that level of accountability going, that's the one that's holding you back, guys. That's one that's weighing you down. Helps them just put. Like you said, there's great things about running a business and then there's stuff that you have to do that you don't like. And that's one of them is the process component, especially for visionaries. It's the last thing they want to spend time or money doing. And then the final, which is what, you know, the model is actually known for, which is traction. Because no matter how much vision you've got, you know, there's lots of visionaries out there that have great ideas for businesses and they are great concepts, but it's all about your execution. So you can have a great idea, but it'll fail for all the wrong reasons. Um, so having those six key components, especially the traction, which is making sure that what you're doing today is actually delivering on a short term to say, I'll be in business a year from now and I will get my vision off the ground. So that's that's the that's, that's the framework. Yeah, the yeah it's good to hear that because that, that they are like the six most important. You could say they're the six most important components components of business, and you should be looking at those things. And I also love the traction book mm. um, because it actually does go through those. And and I, I read the book and implemented a lot of the stuff myself. Mm. Um, and uh, this and that's the, the beauty start of, of it. Cup, and I still do it today. Like I haven't read the book since for nine years, but but I I still do things like. Mm. One thing I loved about the people component mm. was, uh, and this is relevant even to me right now, is that you can have the right people, but are they in the right position? You know, because often you move people into new positions or they do, mm. and, and you realize, oh, that person doesn't suit that position. doesn't mean they shouldn't yeah. be in the company. They should yeah. be. We just need to find the better position for them. So yeah. do you have it's the right Jim people Collins. in the right position? Yeah. Get the right people on the bus, but make sure mm. you got the right person driving too. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And then <laughs> so the you have to have one. both. Yeah. Like we learned. Uh, I love listing the issues, 
one thing I do with the leadership team every single week is I say to them, what are your current issues? Or we, 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 we call them risks at the, at, at the moment. Mm. What are your current risks? Yeah. And what are you doing to make sure that that's no, no longer going to be a risk? That, that and, do you need, that. and what help do you need from us? Exactly. That's a big opportunity. But then you're getting ahead of things. So like, think you, okay, this could be it. Okay, we need to solve for that. If that happens, mm. there's not going to be a problem. And, and I found that that really helps teach the leadership team that we need to be where we have ownership over this company doing well and we need to be solving things before they even happen so mm. that they don't happen. And, yeah. and I, I actually learned all that just by reading the book. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, then, and then practicing. Yeah, the, the good times are fun. That's the easy part. It's when you've got the risks and or the opportunities. Are you going to take that opportunity or this opportunity? I think the most, you know, the biggest part of that that we always say is, you know, Daniel, you've got a really great business here and some really great people. Um, the most important thing as a leader, leader uh, is to take responsibility. So it's take responsibility for all the successes, but just as importantly for all of the things that aren't working because you created both. So it's like taking the responsibility and making sure that we're celebrating the wins and we're addressing the things that could be working better. And it's when you can do that, people want to work with you because it's not – it's not scary when something's going wrong. There's actually an environment and a culture that says, no, we want to know. Let's, let's do this and let's do it together and let's take those obstacles out of the way or run at that opportunity. Um, and I think it's fun to solve problems. Like oh, I really do. Like, well, I, I <laughs> That's an like, awesome attribute. It is. Well, I think the team, Laura, no. Like I feel <laughs> like we always have fun solving problems. I reckon it's one of the best things we do. Like because it's something to do. Like I, I, it's I enjoy that. Yeah, when it's you're like, like shit, yes. how do we do that? And then like thinking about it, like there's the and, visionary. And to, yeah, to there's what we were saying before, like the thinking about it, problem solver. That can, is the profile. But then someone else needs to be able to be like, you know what? That is possible. We can do that, and this is how we do it. Yeah, or that is possible. But we said we were going to do this this year, so we're going to park that. Yeah, and, well, and that's just as important as knowing what matters most now, and like, and what will. Um, what could actually be a great opportunity, but at the wrong time, it can be so disruptive that you just don't. Um, it's not the best idea at the moment. Mm. And that's where having really great people around you that says, awesome, great, but maybe not right now. Let's wait until we get this, this, this in place. And that's the practicalities of having a team that supports a great vision, um, but knowing when to do it and how. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And tell me about your thinking around how you decided to do that, to, to, to start the, or to become an EOS implementer, you'd call it, no? Yeah, yeah. And um, in relation to you wanted a business for yourself, but you wanted one that suits your current, your, your current life goals and lifestyle. Mm, yeah. And I, and listen, I did, like I said, I did a lot of research and I shortlisted a few, but um, there was a big part of that decision process. Number one, there was non-negotiables. I needed to be able to choose who I worked with and not work with. I needed to be able to charge what I wanted, do whatever with my, you know, my, my proceeds of my business um, and not be tiled, tied to some royalties or anybody to a degree that it was my business to, a, to that degree. And that franchise model allowed for that. It was very atypical. It was just, you could be quite autonomous, but there was obviously some guidelines. You have to, you know, deliver the product as the product is, which I had already been living it. So that was not a problem for me. I actually believe completely and wholeheartedly as a client of um, the, the model and using it and what it can bring 
back. Um, so I was fine with that. It was, it was definitely, but then it also was the community and the core values. So you have to find like-minded people. You have to, you have to be in business with people that are either like-minded to share core values, similar core values and, and have the opportunity to share. Um, so there's a community of others. And I interviewed so, about five or six. Daniel was the first one because I worked with Daniel in 2014 before he identified, he identified at EOS and brought it back to the States and him and his team at that time were just heavily impressionable on me. And I, and I loved them as human beings. So when I was going through my journey of figuring out what I was going to do, I talked to a lot of people that were, that were important to me in that, in the 10 years that I'd been here in Australia and just circled back to them and said, what do you think? You know me, what do you think I should do? What are you doing? Tell me what you're seeing in the marketplace. What's hot, what's trending. And in that journey, I shortlisted um, EOS because Daniel and, and a few other people that I knew were doing it. And at the end of the day, the product was a no-brainer. The community, they're beautiful. They're abundance-minded. So, Which is like important said, when you're a solopreneur, I guess, because you, you're missing that. It's critical. That, so yeah, because see, I would be like, I don't want to ever be a solopreneur because I, what I like is having everyone in the room together just like talking. And I knew yeah. that was going to be the biggest thing I missed. And that's, that's why I'm a cub member as well. Cause I thought people give me fuel. That's my energy is connection. Um, so delivering and working with clients was going to be a really great way to satisfy that. But the other thing was team colleagues, um, people supporting me emotionally and, and professionally. So when I was interviewing other models that I thought had credit, um, and had legs and had longstanding, um, reputation. I went with EOS. The, it, what tipped me over the edge is the community. It was the core values, do the right thing, grow or die. They, that was me. I just so identified that. And I thought, yeah, that these are my people. And I, out of, I think there's 32 maybe here in APAC. And I, at that time, which was three years ago, I think I interviewed 10 of them. I was, I was stalking them all for a conversation and it was just so reassuring that they did, they delivered on those core values and they were going to be my colleagues. And so what's been your favorite style of business to operate? The solopreneur business, the hundred staff business or the business for somebody else? At Listen, I think I, I'm going to say I've nailed it because I, I did what was right for me at different stages of my life. When I was young and I had tons of energy, energy I started a business and that takes a lot of everything. Salt. It takes everything. You know, you are, you are long nights. It's, you do every job, you wear every hat. So a startup is, you need, you know, Realistically, it was right at 30. So and you I need time it. and energy time and enthusiasm and, energy. and a bit of naivety. And not a lot of people that are waiting at home for you when you're not coming home. Like I was, you know, nine o'clock at night and that's when we weren't married yet, but he's like, yeah, he traveled a lot, which was great. But he was like, are you me home for dinner? <laughs> I'm like, great. hell no, you know? So when there's people waiting for you at home and there's another life, there's a lot of other lives that are impacted by you. Um, as part of that, it's re you're really torn. So in my thirties, it was awesome. You know, babies didn't need you at the, you know, I got it right. So then in my thirties, that was absolutely what I should be doing is, is starting a business and having that, that venture. And then in my forties, when my kids were young, it was Maybe not another startup, Sheila, especially in a new country. Let's get them acclimated. Let's get you through the emotional trauma of moving and becoming a foreigner in a foreign country as your new home. That was big. So I, I just think you play the right cards um, 
by design if you think about it and you plan it. And I, I'm doing what I'm meant to do in my 50s, <laughs> which is a much simpler life with a lot of freedom, but giving me the financial freedom to do it because I earned that. Well, I so. think it's a great example of how, you know, you create the business that, that suits you and your yeah. life. You know, yeah. the business is yours to design to fit you. You know, you just, your success in business isn't the size or profit, profitability of the business. Success in business is it's delivering the lifestyle that you desire. That's right. And, and I think that's, that's really cool. I also think it's interesting to note too, that you get better at business. So like starting early is great because you suck when you start, you know, and then after on the five job. years, 10 years, yeah, I'm pretty good job. at this. Maybe I can have a, yeah, you know, yeah. I can also do other things and run the business because yeah. I'm just better at doing Leave it. Do you know, yeah. like, yeah. And the learning curve is hard and long in the beginning and then you just spot you spot the things that need fixing or opportunity faster. You just see them faster and, yeah, you're better at it, which is great. So, if you know, if you stop and think about it that way, the game in my life was always you work less and earn more. So that was the goal. Which is like the definition of getting better at it. That's yeah. right. So fit for purpose. Different life stages. When I was in real estate, it was so funny. The first couple of weeks, they're like, just look up. I say this all the time. Just look up, you know, the properties that exchanges exchanged between seven and 10 years ago. And I'm like, you're kidding me. You're kidding. And they're like, no, it's statistically proven. Seven, The seven-year itch is real. And when you think about your life, it is real. You know, when you're young and single, you've got this and then, you know, different fit for purpose stages. And then when you're married and you get, you get an apartment that has two bedrooms, right? And, or three bedrooms for visitors. And then, and then you buy a house when you have your child and then you get a house with a pool. And then, and then in seven to 10 years, those kids don't play in that pool. They're, you know, heading to the city or, you know, to Redfern to be out partying. And, and so the, the pool's just collecting leaves. So, and I thought it's so true. Every seven to 10 years, our needs change, our preferences, our desires. And so, yeah, if you, if you stop and think about what you want and what you need and start designing your life, um, that's, that's pretty much what I did. Every decade I was like, okay, things have changed, things have shifted, what do I want to do now? I loved running that business that didn't, wasn't mine for seven years. It's great. But then the, you kind of go, okay. Did that. And to wrap up, what would be the most important lesson in business? If you had one lesson in business to teach to your kids or to tell them, what would that one be? To make sure you're doing it for all the right reasons. You know, you can get caught up in a really successful business or a successful venture and be swept up in it. But at the end of the day, sit with yourself and say, is this what I want? What do I want? Am I getting what I want out of this um, and if not, what am I willing to do? I was, I do, I have three children and I say, is this, this is, sounds great. And this is awesome on paper, awesome on paper. But are you taking the time to sit with yourself and making sure that it's aligned with, you know, your core values, um, your dreams, what you want instead of the people that get you all excited and say, you're so awesome. We want you on this venture. We want you on this trip. We want you on this ski season. It's like, is that what you want? You yeah. have to be true to yourself. Don't get tricked into, or don't get seduced swept up. into. Yeah, yeah, it's so easy to get swept up into other people's dreams and other people's visions because if they're louder and more um, clear on where we're going and this is what we're doing and get on this bus, sometimes it's really easy to go, yeah, I'm getting on that bus, you know? So I always 
say to them, and I've practiced this more and more in my later years, is taking the time to go, is this what I want? And even if it's not the easy way. It's normally worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you want to get in contact with Sheila, you can go to club forward slash podcast, um, find more lessons in business, book recommendations and, and, and other things there. Or if you want to catch up with Cub on our socials, our Instagram is at Club United Business. It's also awesome. Thank you so much, Sheila, for coming oh, on today and sharing your story. Me. It's such a pleasure. We're very lucky to have you. Hope you enjoyed the show.